The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Welcome to The Exchange. We are just about 24 hours away from the Fed's decision on interest rates, and the markets couldn't even go 24 hours believing Jamie Dimon that the bank crisis is over. The KRE Regional Bank ETF down 7% right now. Some regionals, including PacWest, halted the Fed's decision, growing more monumental minute by minute. We have the voices you want to hear from. Regional Bank CEO Aaron Graft, an exclusive interview with PIMCO CEO Manny Roman, former Fed Governor Randy Krosner. He's been worried about another shoe to drop for the banks. And value investor and Berkshire board member Chris Davis. He's managed money through three different bank crises. We'll ask him how he's managing through this one, what he's buying, and the one sector he's steering clear of altogether, and it's not the banks. First, though, let's get over to Dom Chu with a look at exactly what's happening at this hour, Dom. So, Kelly, I I know that you're coming down here to see what I'm looking at because it is a sea of red out there, the likes of which we haven't really felt in a while, right? Right. It's been a while since we've seen that 1% move. But if you look at the S&P 500 at 4,108, we're still above that 4,100 mark, but down 1.5%. And just to give you an idea, Kelly, at the lows of the session, we were down roughly 78 points and down about three at the highs. So it's been generally a negative day. And for the most part, the NASDAQ composite has been, if you want to call it, outperforming. It's only about one quarter of 1%, but still... The focus is very much on those financials, as you point out. Now, I'll show you why. You mentioned some of those names like PacWest, multiple trading halts. It's not the only one with multiple trading halts today. Wow. PacWest is down about 26% right now, but also Western Alliance. These two names, Western Alliance has had multiple trading halts today as well. It's down about 19, 20% off session lows. Bank of Hawaii, though. Still, Western-focused bank down 10%. Zion's bank out in Utah down about 13%. And as you point out, the S&P Regional Bank ETF down about 8%. And just to kind of give you an idea, and viewers out there, the regional bank move, that, that spider regional bank ETF that Kelly points out, the KRE, If you look at a chart over the last year, we know it was March, right? I mean, that's the big white line lower right there. Exactly. If you look at that versus, say, the financial sector spider, the ticker XLF, it's down, but not nearly as much. And that has some of the bigger banks out there. And then the S&P overall is only down about 1% during that span. So that relative performance that you point out there, Kelly, is dramatic, very much to the downside. That's something a lot of traders will be watching to see whether that regional bank story can find any way of stabilizing. Because remember, that was where it was supposed to be stabilizing, right and there. And here's where we are today, right. even below that level. Exactly. Dom, thank you. you we appreciate it. it, Dom Chu. Despite the sell-off in the banks today, my next guest owns several big ones in his portfolios. You can see two here on your screen, Capital One and Wells Fargo. They're both down 4.5%, by the way. Thank you, Dom. This is the third banking crisis he's managed through since the 1980s, and he says this one is different. Joining me now is veteran value investor Chris Davis, chairman and portfolio manager of Davis Advisors. He's also a Berkshire Hathaway board member. Chris, it's great to have you here today. Welcome. Thank you so much, Kelly. I'm glad to be here. Having weathered bank crises before, does this one uh, kind of give you deja vu that we are living through one all over again? Or would you say this one is more contained? 
Well, this one's very different in the sense that uh, the last two banking crises were really driven by credit. That's usually when people think about risk uh, for bank stock investors. You think about, I made loans and the people don't pay me back. So in the 80s, of course, it was wildly uh, centered in commercial real estate, look through office buildings. Then, of course, in the financial crisis around residential real estate. But again, credit was the focus. Here, of course, it is interest rates. It was losses in the securities portfolio of banks that got crazily aggressive in taking interest rate risk uh, uh, that made no sense. I mean, it was, and it was transparent. The amazing thing is why nobody cared about it until everybody cared about it. So this one is different. And I think the stocks are behaving as if it is a traditional banking crisis. It's a traditional credit crisis. But really, it is different. And what's different is that by looking at the interest rate exposures, you're really able to see which ones took the risk and which ones didn't. And I think that's creating opportunity. What kind of opportunity? Because a lot of people who were talking about opportunity yesterday or a month ago are maybe looking at some of the things they thought they were buying on the cheap and realizing they didn't. Well, it's always dangerous to sort of think you're going to scoop something that's fragile off the bottom. Um, I think this is a time and always, in, you know, I started our financial fund more than 30 years ago. And the real focus has to be on resilience. You know, the model of making a spread on money is as, about as old as human history. All right. So it, the model is durable. The banks that we own, we own banks that are in their second century, even in their third century. Uh, so there's enormous resiliency to the model. And so when you get a panic, I think you have to look for where are the companies that are vulnerable. You have to avoid those because then you're, as you say, trying to scoop them off the bottom. That is risky. But if you own the companies that, in a sense, are beneficiaries, after all, where are those depositors going? When they leave these smaller regional banks, they are fleeing to the big banks. That's, I think, where there's enormous safety. And you can look at, for example, the balance sheet of Wells Fargo, and you can see just how conservative they were in terms of not taking big interest rate risk, and at the same time that they've had enormously resilient deposits. That's a wonderful combination with higher interest rates widening their profitability. So I think it's very different because it's not systemic. It's really uh, a flow, a uh, flight to quality. And the fact that the big banks are going down so much, I think, is creating that opportunity. Right. So you'd be a buyer here. I mean, some have said it's Wells Fargo uh, sort of ironically benefiting from the asset cap that maybe they didn't grow deposits more during the pandemic and go out on a limb in the same way that other institutions did. I mean, so you, when you say that the crisis is contained and it's just a flight to quality, which makes sense, I guess the only remaining question when we see sort of scare headlines like they're running a drudge right now that say, you know, the, the you know, the U.S. banking system is insolvent, basically. Um, what would your response be to that? Well, it's it's a, it's it's a stupid comment because of course they're only marking one side of the balance sheet to market, right? Insolvency is is when your liabilities ex exceed your assets, right? And your and your liabilities plus equity, and and so you know what's interesting in bank accounting is people are very focused on marking the assets to market, your loans, your securities, and they're saying these things are underwater. Well, what is the value of your deposits? Right. When you have a source of funds at one, one and a half percent and you have, you know, available rates at 
four or five, and those deposits are sticky, which in the case of many of these banks that have smaller retail deposit bases, those deposits have not just been sticky, they've been growing during this period at a very, very low cost. So you have to mark both sides to, to market. And of course, what matters, Kelly, is not uh, uh, whether somebody has longer term assets, it's that whether their assets match their liabilities in duration. And so what we've seen in the case of somebody like Wells Fargo is very, very sticky deposits. Think of all the bad headlines that have plagued Wells Fargo over the last five or six years. And yet the deposits have been stayed at something like 90 or 92% uh, 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 deposit retention rate. So, you know, in a way that's longer than your cable bills and very, very sticky and very, very valuable. And so when people talk about marking the asset side and saying they're insolvent without marking up the liability side, I think they're just showing some ignorance of basic accounting. But what happens from here, Chris, and kind of broaden this out, because obviously you have holdings across the whole economy. Aside from Berkshire itself, you have applied materials, you have Texas Instruments, so some semi-plays there. There's concerns, obviously, about, you know, kind of the glut coming out of the pandemic and the macro factors weighing over the hanging over the banks where you go, OK, it's not just that they got into kind of a mismatch here because of, of Fed rate hikes. It's that we appear to be heading into a recession. You know, you can quibble yeah. about exactly when it's going to start. But, you know, that's a is that priced in? I mean, to any of these stocks that you hold? Well, I think when you look at the Fed stress test, you know, of course, it seems crazy that it didn't include interest rate exposure. Uh, any any analyst was making those adjustments anyway, or should have been. But but certainly the Fed stress test speaks to enormous resilience in the face of a recession in the banking sector, particularly in the large banks where you have the highest capital ratios in history. You have enormous resiliency to withstand, you know, 10% unemployment, big declines in commercial real estate, residential real estate, all of those uh, stress tests factors put in after the financial crisis to ensure that the banks could withstand something even worse than the financial crisis. So I do think they're in good shape. But Kelly, you, you make a very important point, which is, you know, the banks are discounting a recession. Is the rest of the economy, is the rest of the market discounting that recession? I would say, you know, banks often lead the way in, mm -hmm. the stocks go down first, and then the rest catches up. I mean, you know, we have a, at our portfolio, I think that it would be you know, crazy to invest, not imagining or not contemplating that there will be a recession. Guessing the timing has always been a loser's game. Um, but certainly we want to have a portfolio of durable, resilient businesses. You know, so we talk a lot about banks, but our largest position is Meta, which six True. months ago, everybody thought was, you know, a, a complete disaster and basket case. Six months later, you have this wildly different perception. You mentioned some of our holdings like Texas Instruments, Applied Materials. These are durable, resilient growth companies. So you can have some volatility, you can have some economic sensitivity, but they aren't cyclical in the sense of going up and down around a horizontal line. They are growth companies. Uh, and I think there are opportunities to buy them at really reasonable prices. So uh, uh, we yeah. love some of those global internet leaders. We love some of the high quality financials. Uh, we think that's a terrific place to be here. You mentioned Meta. You also own Amazon. Let me ask you about energy, where it's probably the only place we've seen Berkshire be active in terms of its kind of big uh, ownership stakes. And yet it's one of the areas that you don't own. Um, it's obviously down today as well. And, you know, they've got amazing cash flow, but uh, possibly a bad macro to contend with. Are you just uh, averse to energy by sort of design? Um, or is there a reason why you, you don't think these stocks should be in the portfolio right now? 
Well, I think that, you know, we have a, a general belief that that sort of long-term emergence of the global middle class will drive energy demand for a long, long time. And so when you look at the, the, the question of how to participate in that growth in demand of the energy sector, one way is oil. But for us, oil is so difficult a commodity to analyze because of all the exogenous forces that come on top of supply and demand. You know, prospects of carbon taxes, windfall profit taxes, uh, uh, political and geopolitical actions that affect this most supercharged economy. And on top of that, you have things like electrification of transportation that could bend the demand curve in ways that aren't necessarily consistent with history. And so our view has been if we want to participate, which we do in this long-term growth in demand, we've preferred things like tech industries, copper, hmm. for example. You know, our view is that copper is a beneficiary of electrification, but also benefits from a lot of these same mega trends that pure energy does. Now, the real problem owning energy over a long period of time has been capital allocation in the sector as a whole has generally been so poor. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you can own a company where you have high conviction that there is capital discipline and that it will persist, I think there certainly could be opportunities in energy and, and we wouldn't be a to looking at them. Yeah, well, maybe Buffett needs to explain himself better. Uh, he picks his targets carefully, and we'll look to see if they get more active here in, in the months to come. Uh, for now, Chris, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time today and for joining us on a day like this, especially. Oh, of course, Kelly. Thank you so much. Chris Davis with Davis Advisors. And don't miss Berkshire Hathaway's annual shareholder meeting this Saturday, May 6th. You can catch it live all day on CNBC and CNBC.com. Now, the Fed's next move on rates is coming in just 24 hours time. And economists are a little worried about this expected rate hike. Steve Leisman is here with the results of the latest CNBC Fed survey. Steve? Kelly, thanks. And this is a perfect segue from that interesting segment with Chris Davis, because the respondents to the CNBC Fed survey are looking at an elevated chance of recession, in part because of all of the banking issues that are out there. Take a look here. We're looking at a 56 percent chance of recession uh, in the next 12 months. Now, look, if you come all the way over here, this is sort of normal. In any one year, things going OK, there's a one in five chance of a recession. But then you can see as the Fed began to raise rates and raise them aggressively, that recession probability kept rising to being where we are right now at 56 percent. Take a little bit more detailed look at the uh, views about a, a recession among our respondents. 62 percent think it will be uh, mild. September 2023 is the beginning date. Now, that's interesting because it's the second track in a row We've come up with that September 2023 date. It had been June, but they have pushed it ahead because the economy's actually performed stronger and that predicted recession has not happened yet. Eight months is the average length expected of the recession. Now, take a look. Here's a problem, which is that we don't really see a big rebound. Here is a couple quarters of zero or even negative growth for this year, and it comes up. At call it around trend, 1.6%. A lot of times after recession, we get a bigger boost. We're not seeing that here. And now I love this chart here because you can see the relationship, at least the expected relationship between inflation, which is seen coming down. And that happens in part or because of unemployment going up. Quite a bit of unemployment is built in there. 4.69 percent is the unemployment rate. Show you some of the commentary and how banking works into all this. Alan Sinai says no recession is still the most likely outcome, but financial instability has raised recession risk. John Donaldson, there are risks to the overall economy from trying to quickly force inflation lower. Guy Labasse from Jane Montgomery Scott says a narrow recession is most likely and that the path on the other side is pretty optimistic for corporate earnings. 
Finally, Mark Zandi says that the Fed ends its rate hike soon and lawmakers limit the drama around the debt limit increase. It has a fighting chance to avoid recession in the coming year. On that difference that you were talking about there, Kelly, mm-hmm. 100% think the Fed's going to hike rates. 59% say the Fed shouldn't do it because of banking concerns. Wow. Steve, come on over as we continue the conversation. My next guest is concerned about the banks for the same reason Charlie Munger is. It's their exposure to commercial real estate. Roughly a trillion and a half of CRE debt will likely have to be refinanced at higher rates in the next 18 months, unless rates collapse by then. Uh, despite that, he still sees the Fed hiking tomorrow. Sounds like Steve's panel. Let's bring in Randy Krosner, <laughs> former Federal Reserve Governor and Economics Professor at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. Uh, Randy, thanks for your time today. And, you know, I guess I have to ask you first and foremost, about FDIC deposit insurance here, not because you're an expert per se, but because that might be the only solution. For instance, your former colleague Eric Rosengren just tweeted, you know, deposit insurance ceilings need to be raised or eliminated. The steady attack on regional banks is destructive to financial markets and ultimately the economy. Um, Is he right? Well, I certainly agree with the latter part that it is, is disruptive. I think we need to rethink the entire bank funding model. Um, We used to think that, uh, well, basically, in the response to the global financial crisis, we said, oh, well, we don't want uh, banks to be funding themselves through borrowing in the markets. We want that steady steady source of funding deposits. Hmm. Now we know that they're not so steady as they they once were. Um, Deposit insurance is fine up to its limit. Uh, We have uh, firms holding very large payroll balances in some of these banks. Um, they un- un- unsurprisingly have gotten, uh, gotten skittish and are moving to some of the larger banks. So I think we need a broader rethink about um, how banks are, are funding themselves. Yeah, and by the way, he's not the only one. So Bill Ackman, Steve, I don't know if you saw this tweet as well, saying that after the Fed hikes, as they're expected, we start to see, for instance, a lot of those money market mutual funds offer 5%. He says, you think you don't, we're not going to have a renewed round of deposits? Here's the Ackman tweet of deposits leaving the banking system and, and going elsewhere. I mean, that, that's really been the story. I, I- Look, I'm ready to tell the positive story on regional banks. Frankly, I was unconvinced by Chris Davis, who said that there's a low cost there at 1%. I don't think that low cost remains. As Randy just said, Randy's a former banker. He should be out there supporting the regional banks, but he can't do it because it's very difficult, Kelly, to say the regional bank deposit base is safe. There is one ace in the hole they have. Which is that? But did they local, already play it? The ace in the hole was the J.P. Morgan. That's I one thought. ace in the hole. And but I'm, I'm, saying, I'm saying in terms of the longer-term business model, the longer-term business model ace in the hole is in order to lend locally, they have to be located there, and that's it. But I don't know that the deposits have to be there locally. That's really the problem that we're having trouble is 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 um, joining and understanding the connection between both sides of the balance sheet. And Randy, undoubtedly, we know that this is going to impact the macro economy. I mean. It seems ludicrous for them to hike rates tomorrow. Am I wrong? Well, I think it's going to be a real nail biter because you've got, I think you've got two views around the table. One is that there are there banking and financial problems. We use macroprudential policy to deal with that. And we've got an inflation problem. We've got to go head on in that. Others are saying they're intimately related. And so if we raise rates, that's going to be problematic. Um, it's going to be very interesting when the transcripts come out in five years from now. So I think they were clearly going to this meeting expecting, the, um, uh, expecting to raise rates. Um, and I'm not so sure they're going to, to do that. If they do, they're going to make it really clear that they are sensitive to the issues that are happening right now and that they're not going to be going forward Randy, with, uh, with more rates. Let's do the transcript now, okay? <laughs> I'm at the meeting. Hey, look here, uh, Jay. I got the KBW. Down whatever it is down today. How many? Seven and a half percent. Seven and a half percent today. 
Look at what happened to the January Fed funds rate. It fell by 20 basis points today. today. Wow. It's ridiculous. I don't know if they have that chart in the what back. What are we down to, roughly? It, it, it's, it's 440. So the gap wow. between where the Fed thinks it's going to be and where the market thinks it's going to be has widened. There's the, I Look at that. 440. And just so people exactly know what this I means, said. that means by January. Well, by December. By December. By I mean, December. That's why we use January, Six right? Six months away, it's let's clean. say. Seven months away. Right. They think the, fa- the funds rate, which they're going to raise above 5.5% tomorrow, Today, will be down and to stay 4.4%. There. Right, exactly. So, so, Randy, how does that play at the table there? Does somebody come forward and say, hey, you know what? Is this something that should cause us to pause? Or somebody else comes forward and says, you know what? We're not going to be messed around by today's gyrations in the market. Exactly. So they're going to be the people who say we, we need to move ahead. We've got, a, we've got a, the big picture problem is inflation. And if we just move, respond to market movements, um, we're just going to be pushed around and we're not going to solve the problem because they're going to go back to what happened in the late 70s, early 80s when the Fed paused too soon. And that's when Volcker had to raise rates to double digit levels. Remember, the last time inflation was this high in the U.S., we had interest rates at double digit levels. Um, mortgages were at 12 or 14 percent if you could get one. We don't want to get there. And so that's going to be the argument of why they need to move. It, ultimately, 25 basis points one way or another is not going to make or break the U.S. economy. If it does, we're in such a <laughs> difficult situation that, uh, no, that I mean, that's lo- a problem. Lo- look at what we've heard from Kaplan, who said he would have, I think, dissented from the last one. Uh, Rosengren mm-hmm. again, who says he, uh, was it him who said he would dissent tomorrow if he were still there and they hiked. I mean, you are starting to see at least former Fed officials, Randy, come out and say, you know, we've gone too far. And I don't know which way you want to look at leading inflation gauges, but they, there are some like trimmed mean PCE, Dallas Fed, over the past six months annualized is practically negative. There's just not a t- look at prices paid on the ISM. It's consistent with like a 2% inflation print. So um, you, you can pick different pieces of data. Certainly we're, we're far off of our peaks, but if you look at things like um, the core PCE, that's kind of flatlined around 4.6, 4.7%. If you get the super core that takes out shelter, it is down down a bit. But you know the uh, the, uh, the the goal is two percent. We're still pretty far from there. So we're certainly starting to see uh, evidence of that. The key thing is what's going to happen to the labor market, and is the labor market going to crack? As I've said before, I think to to you, the Fed's not going to quit until the labor market quits. We're starting to see some evidence that the labor market may be uh, may be cracking. Mm-hmm. And although our models always say things move smoothly. I can tell you from my time at the Fed and from the way the world works, it's never smooth. Once it starts moving, it gets moving pretty rapidly. I mean, hopefully we could have that immaculate disinflation where we uh, we have the unemployment rate only go up about one percentage point and inflation comes down. Yeah. We've never seen that before. Let me it's just possible, quickly, but I think it's not likely. Steve, I want you to get a last word in, but it, the CFO council event this morning we had uh, here at CNBC, wonderful uh, group, a lot of prominent companies. It's off the record, but I can sort of say it this way. There were CFOs who warned that if the Fed hikes again, they could be facing an abrupt stop, right, in the economy. That's the kind of thing that pe- people have to kind of plan for these corporations. Say, okay, it's not a disaster right now, but we risk kind of pushing to the point at which we really trigger a broader You know, it's, it's interesting you say that. It reminds me of when I reported on the 2001 recession, which is how long I've been doing this, and I talked to the president of Kodak, which many of you may not even know was a company years ago, <laughs> and the chairman, of, he said it was as if all... The cameras around the world stopped clicking at once. So the idea of an abrupt stop is a possibility. I wanted to add, Kelly, to your litany of Fed comments. One made very consequentially, or maybe not as consequential as it should have been, Esther George was the one dissent during this whole rate hike cycle here, 
it, which she dissented because she didn't want to go yes. and hike as much because of her concern over the banking industry. Yes, and we have to leave it there. Gentlemen, I really appreciate your time today. Randy Krosner, a pleasure on a day like this. Steve, thank you. Uh, Tyler and I will be heading down to the Beltway tomorrow to cover the Fed decision. Don't miss our special programming at 1 p.m. Eastern time. Now, meanwhile, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warning the U.S. could hit the debt ceiling as soon as June 1st. It's just another major economic risk on the horizon on a day when the banking sector is back in the crosshairs. Here to discuss the fallout in an exchange exclusive from the Milken Institute Global Conference in Beverly Hills is Emmanuel Roman. He is the CEO of PIMCO, or Manny, if I may. Thank you so much for your time. Do you want to just jump in here when you hear all the gloom and doom? I mean, should are we right to be concerned? What a, we should be concerned, Kelly, and, and thank you for having me. I think we have a situation where we have three things happening at the same time. We have the debt ceiling problem, which needs to be resolved and most likely will be resolved, but I think we're going to have rocky markets until mid-June to mid-July. I think you have a situation with the banking system where you have a lot of volatility in the banking system and clearly regional bank on the stress. And then you have a geopolitical situation where there are issues with China which are not going to go away. And so all of this, we need to navigate markets and get to a better place. And, and I think you're right to be concerned. Yeah. The most likely scenario in our view is that you have a soft landing with a recession uh, by the end of the year. But of course, they are tail on both sides. Yeah, I mean, so, soft landing, recession. We're looking at the regional banks down again today. How do, how do policymakers stop this problem, Manny? If they came to you, what would you say? Well, I think Randy summarized it very well. I think first and foremost, you need to fight inflation and you need to hike rates. And as you said, we expect the Fed to rise rates by 25 bips and then pause. And pause, as my partner and friend Dan Iverson was saying to me this morning, doesn't mean stop. It means pause. And so it will be data dependent. And if, if, if inflation remains high, the Fed will rise again. So I'm we will have a pause. And then we'll, we'll see what happens. I'm surprised to hear you as somebody, as such a financial markets firm, to hear you say inflation is still the number one problem. I mean, the markets are indicating, look, the, the yield curve is now 171 basis points inverted. Doesn't that say to you that an economic crash is a bigger risk than uh, stubbornly high inflation in the next six months? No, I think, the, I think what the yield curve is telling you is the central case is that there will be a mild recession and the market is telling you that you expect inflation to be slightly above three and that the Fed will cut rates starting in the second half of the year and into 2024. And you have two tail. You have a tail of a hard landing, which is a 20% probability. And you also have a tail of no recession, which we don't think is very likely, but it's certainly possible and also has a 20% probability. And always think that the yield curve is an average of views and so you have a central case, but you also have two separate uh, uh, yeah. scenarios. It just, it, you know, it has a pretty good track record, right? It, it kind of telling us the storm is coming. And I'm, a... I just don't hear a lot of concern from policymakers. I mean, in the fact that we're now hiking as a banking crisis is, first people said it was just going to be one day in March. Then it was just going to be one weekend in March. Then it was just going to be First Republic. Now it's just going to be, I mean, the narrative keeps changing. Doesn't that worry you? Well, we don't know what we don't know. I think, I think the regulator is extremely well aware of what's happening with the banks. I think the FDIC is dealing with it. I think the resolution of First Republic was exactly what you expect uh, the FDIC to do. 
and then we'll take it from there. I think none of us uh, know what's happening inside this bank. Of course, we look at the same data, you do, and of course the move of cash from deposit to money market or from smaller regional bank to large bank is unprecedented. I would also uh, signal what uh, we, we should have thought about, but it's pretty obvious, is that the modern mean of technology make wire inside the banking system much faster and much quicker. Yeah. And so one of the lessons from the SVB situation is that people could literally wire all of the money within a few hours. And that's new, and I think that's a response that policy uh, holder would have to think about in terms of how they deal with the next problem, if there is a next problem. Right. That being said, the PIMCO view is that the U.S. banking system is in pretty good shape. Do you think they need, you know, Secretary Mnuchin and others have said, I mean, even today a lot more people are calling for a uh, raise on deposit insurance. As a, a, you know, you manage a very large business, right? You guys are not maybe not in the same boat as that small business trying to make payroll, but the FDIC is maybe looking at things like trying to exempt payroll accounts from the FDIC insurance cap. Do we need to move in this direction, um, or do people need to be more prudent about how they're managing their money and where they're where they're putting their cash? Well, I think the cash is. I mean, I think the cash is very important, and I think there's a good argument to be made that we should raise the FDIC limit. But it is harder for a company who also has payroll with a specific bank to move the cash away. It's never a cash-only problem. And I think, I think it's, the devil is in the detail here. And so having one policy response may not be totally applicable in the sense that every situation is different and the regional banks are all different among themselves. Yeah. And so uh, the FDIC you know, is going to have a complicated problem to solve. Yeah, it certainly does. Um, and Emmanuel Roman, thank you for your time uh, at Milken with the markets so busy and, and your firm right in the middle of it all. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Kelly. Emmanuel Roman is the CEO of PIMCO. Next hour from Milken, don't miss our interview with Guggenheim's chief economist, Brian Smedley. Really look forward to his views on this whole situation. That'll be at 2 p.m. Eastern on Power Lunch. Still ahead here, how are home prices holding up these days? Better than you might expect. We've got the details and where demand is the strongest. And as we head to break, take a look at the Dow heat map with Chevron, Walgreens, and Amex, the worst performers today. The Dow low was minus 615. Uh, we're a little off that right now. The exchange is back after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.
Welcome back. It's not just the banks. It's a rough day for the energy trade as well. Uh, oil's down 5%, back below $72 a barrel. Pippa Stevens has more detail. Pippa? Hey, Kelly. Well, oil is getting cracked, as you said, down more than 5% following weak economic data out of China and jitters ahead of tomorrow's Fed decision. We're now well below prices, where prices were ahead of OPEC's surprise production cut announcement back at the beginning of April. Now, energy stocks are getting hit hard today, by far the worst S&P sector. Upstream names like APA, Marathon Oil and Diamondback all sharply lower. Now, we're also seeing weakness in the services companies. The OIH is down 6% right now, with Halliburton falling more than 7%. Now, Diamondback said this morning that rig costs are coming down, so that could be playing a part here, as well as the broader issue that if commodity prices stay lower and drillers cut back, that will then hit the services companies. Now, today's weakness is despite what's so far been a very strong quarter for energy earnings, as Stacey Morris at Vetify put it, the positive results are getting lost in overall market turmoil, recession concerns and risk-off sentiment are trumping earnings reports. Now, profits probably did peak back in Q2, as you can see in this chart, but companies are still earning a lot more than prior to the pandemic. And of course, Kelly, they are using those profits to reward shareholders. Either, or they're trying on a day like this. Pippa, thank you. We'll see you soon. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler? Kelly, thank you very much. And here, folks, is your CNBC News update right up to the minute. The cost of Russia's invasion of Ukraine growing more deadly for Moscow as the fighting drags on. The Kremlin's forces have suffered more than 100,000 killed or wounded fighters since December alone. U.S. officials say half of those kills were killed were from the Wagner mercenary group who died fighting over the contested eastern city of Bakhmut. Russia disputes these figures. Former Minneapolis police officer Tu Thao has been convicted of aiding and abetting manslaughter in connection with the death of George Floyd. Thao was uh, last of the, the last of the four former officers facing judgment in state court. But unlike the other three former officers, Thao maintained that he did nothing wrong. He is currently in prison after his conviction in federal court for violating Floyd's civil rights. And the Canadian folk singer and Gordon Lightfoot has died at 84. The chart-topping artist made his rise in the 70s with hits like Sundown and the epic narrative hit The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Lightfoot, recognized by his native country with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, calling Lightfoot one of the country's greatest singer-songwriters. He takes me back to a time long ago. Kelly, back to you. Simpler time. Tyler, thanks. Coming up, we'll speak with the head of one regional bank about what trends he's seeing and the risks he saw in the commercial real estate business four years ago. As a sea of red is on your screen on the banks again today, we are back after this. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.
Welcome back, everybody. It's another painful, you might even say brutal day for the regional banks. Just a day after J.P. Morgan took over failed First Republic, Western Alliance, PacWest, among the hardest hit on the KRE. And while some are saying the ongoing turmoil only benefits the big banks, at least one regional is still higher for the year. Shares of Triumph Financial are holding on to their gains, up about 3% in 2023. They focus on serving the trucking industry and operate across six states. Joining me now is CEO Aaron Graft. Aaron, welcome to The Exchange. Thank you for having me, Kelly. You know, we were going to talk about what you're doing to transform payments within the trucking sector. Eight percent of GDP. By the way, you took this bank over when you were 32. Just so many incredible things to discuss. Um, I'm going to have to ask you about the banking crisis, though. And uh, just just tell us from a banker's point of view, what do policymakers need to do to get this contained? Yeah, um, it's I think it starts with what do you define as a crisis? You know, I think we, we're seeing this play out in at multiple levels. Um, of course, there was the crisis that came about 90 days ago or 60 days ago, if we want to call it that, that was driven by liquidity and ultimately a crisis of confidence. I mean, capital cannot replace confidence. And so I think what the market needs in order to move forward is the confidence that the banks are in a position to weather the economy, whatever rates do, Whatever, you know, if we have a soft landing or a hard landing, everyone is looking for confidence. Mm -hmm. And so that said, so one of the things, the only ways people are now saying we can instill confidence is to raise FDIC insurance. Let me just uh, quote Morgan Ricks. He's at, at, at Vanderbilt. He says, look at what happened with First Republic. The big banks got what they want. They avoided the, having the cost of failure imposed on them through the FDIC. The FDIC gets what it wants. Depositors were made whole in this case. The losers, he says, ultimately are the rest of the banks, the non-giant banks and their customers. Do you agree with that, that what everyone's saying right now, that this all benefits the big getting bigger? Oh, I don't know that everything uh, benefits the big getting bigger. Of course, that's part of it. And, and that makes for great headlines when you look at the way the deal was structured with FRC um, upon its failure. But what I would say is you have, a, the, the, obviously the market does not believe the tangible book value calculations of many of the large regional banks, or they wouldn't be trading where they are. The market has also decided that there are banks well below that, like Triumph Financial, who have a business model that will thrive in, in whatever new regulatory environment, whatever rate environment is coming our way. And so I think there's always opportunity, whether you're one of the largest banks or one of the smallest banks, as long as you understand the markets you're in and understand the markets you serve. Right. And, and kind of by implication there, maybe there were some bankers who did not do that or just simply did not manage risk that well. I mean, I mentioned commercial real estate. If I correct me if I'm wrong, four years ago, you guys thought the returns were unattractive. So you didn't originate a lot of loans in 21 and 22 and those valuations were highest. Do you think, in other words, that the banks that are weakest right now, from your point of view, um, ought to let the market do what it's going to do with them? Yeah, I, I think this is capitalism and the market is going to sort this out. And anything we try to do to kick the can down the road, I'm not sure is valuable for anyone. Um, to your point, commercial real estate is a place historically where community banks have been able to grow. Uh, it's just by the way the market works and it's, it's a great opportunity. But when the market starts pricing in perfection, when the market starts pricing in a perpetual zero interest rate environment, that commodity class becomes at risk because it generally adds duration risk to your balance sheet. And so it wasn't fun for us for the last 
three or four years to lay out of that market. But at the end of the day, you have to decide, is it about optimizing for the near term? Or are we going to run this bank so that even if we're wrong about our own view, that we're in a position to weather that storm? And having been part of turning around a troubled bank, mm -hmm. the second answer is always the right answer. You have to be prepared for what you don't predict. So then let me leave it on this. What are you going to be doing in the next six or 12 months, especially if the storm gets a lot worse? You know, how do you navigate a bank through a period like that? Um, just kind of give, give us a sense of what that means and what are those decision points? What does that look like? Especially, I mean, you guys have a very low cost, if I'm not mistaken, deposit base. You know, is, is that going up? Oh, sure, it's going to go up. I, I, hopefully it goes up slower than our peer group. But to your question, if you're making decisions now, you're probably too late on many of those decisions. Mm -hmm. The biggest part of weathering the storm, those were decisions made two or three years ago. For Triumph, what we do now is we continue to focus on what we do well. We bank Main Street in the markets we serve and we bank truckers. And that's what we know that's what we're, we built this institution to do. And we, we need to be able to serve both of those markets, whatever comes. And so that's what we will continue to do. Yeah, if you're making decisions now, you're making them too late. I think that, <laughs> that resonates today. Aaron, thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Aaron Graft is the CEO of Triumph Financial. By the way, if you're looking for advice on how your business can handle inflation and navigate any uncertain economy, sign up for CNBC's Small Business Playbook happening this Thursday, May 4th. You can register by scanning that QR code on your screen or going to CNBCEvents.com. Still coming up here, mortgage rates are back on the rise and so are home prices in some areas. Where they're climbing again and what that means for housing. And before we go to break, take a look at shares of Chegg. Gotta mention it's down, it's lost nearly half its market cap today. Uh, it's worst day since November of 21, so they're not, they're not unfamiliar with volatility. But they issued extremely weak guidance last night, blaming Chad GPT and AI for slowing customer growth. They did announce they'll be working with OpenAI in the future. Uh, the CEO will be on closing bell overtime 4 p.m. Eastern today. Dan Rosenzweig, don't miss it. Welcome back, everybody. Home buyers, beware. After cooling for much of last year, home prices are heating up again. What's got them moving higher? Let's get to Diana Olick with a look at that. Hi, Diana. Hey, Kelly. Yeah, and it's a couple of things. Consumers now getting used to a higher mortgage rate environment and an unusual drop in new listings right in the heart of the spring housing market. 30% fewer new listings came on in March compared with pre-pandemic norms, and this comes when demand is historically highest. Now, as a result, home prices rose a seasonally adjusted 0.4 5% in March from February, according to an early look at the Black Knight Home Price Index provided to us exclusively. After revisions to January and February reads, this is now the third consecutive month of price increases. And while this is the national look, major markets in the West, where prices were the most overheated, are still coming down, but not as steeply as they had been. Prices overall had started dropping month to month early last year. That was when the average rate on the 30-year fixed mortgage rose sharply, more than doubling since the start of last year. Last June, prices were cooling at the fastest pace on record. Then rates peaked last October and started to come down at the start of this year, causing a major bump in home sales, but not nearly a big enough bump in supply. Why? Because the majority of current homeowners are paying extremely low mortgage rates and don't want to buy something else where they'll have to pay so much 
much more on interest on their debt. This is especially true of baby boomers who would normally be downsizing now. But they're not, Kelly. Right, absolutely. The market's kind of frozen. I, I thought I read that affordability now is actually at its worst point ever because prices keep <laughs> rising and rates are higher. Yeah, you've got the higher rates, which again, people are sort of getting used to. So more buyers are coming into the market. They're just adjusting maybe the size and the location of the home they want to buy. But again, if prices just keep firming up and increasing again, it's just more trouble for the market. Yeah. Diana, thank you. We appreciate it. Diana Oleg reporting. Still ahead, Netflix, Google, Apple all lower today as markets sell off, but they're all streaming standouts, according to a new Morgan Stanley survey. And it was this name that saw the largest increase in users the past year, one of the only mega cap names in the green today. And here's another hint. It started to uptick after Chris Davis mentioned it. Top of the hour right here on the exchange. We'll reveal it and whether it can hold on to that top spot. That's next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Media stocks getting caught up in the sell-off today as Netflix, Disney, and Warner Brothers are all lower. It's the kind of discretionary consumer spending you would expect to see pinched heading into a possible recession. But Morgan Stanley's new media survey shows consumers are continuing to increase the number of active subscriptions they have. And Netflix remains number one in streaming despite hiking prices. But it was Amazon that saw the biggest yearly increase in usage. That was our mystery chart. For more, let's bring in Ben Swinberg, head of U.S. media research at Morgan Stanley. It's good to see you, Ben. And and what jumps out to you about Amazon? Hey, Kelly. Well, it's good to see you, and thanks for having me on. Um, look, I think the headline for us on the Amazon front is probably the impact of sports. Uh, Thursday Night Football, as you probably know, made its um, debut exclusively on Prime last fall. Um, and that seems to us to be probably the, the biggest driver of the, uh, of the increase. And I think it's a big debate for investors, particularly as we come back to Netflix, whether or not live sports you know, makes a big difference. We did ask consumers, for example, about Apple TV Plus, which is still kind of a niche service in terms of penetration, how much would sports matter? Um, and we saw a significant increase in intent to sign up if live sports were included. So I think those are some of the things that are really interesting about our AlphaWise survey this this year. Yeah, although Netflix, you know, what, what was the dating show? Love, what is it called where they couldn't get the Sunday night... Uh Love is blind. Anyway, uh, they've got a long road ahead. You overall, the findings of the survey, respondents now report using 3.2 paid streaming services on average, up from 2.9 last year. Was this the first time we cracked three or were we previously there? Yeah, no, I think it's uh, it's really interesting. I mean, we we talked we, we titled the survey Reaching Adolescence, partly because it was the 13th year of our survey. And I think most people would say there's no way we could actually, as Americans, stream more, pay for more. And we saw every service uh, see increases in year-over-year -year usage, pretty much. Um, and we saw the number of paid subscriptions rise 10% to, uh, you got it, 3.2 uh, per user, which was a new all-time high. Wow. So the question is, how much can it keep growing? And, you know, we always say in many industries, you get to three or four major players. How much consolidation is implied if it doesn't, if it can't really grow much beyond this? Yeah, I, I think a significant amount. I think you make a great point. I mean, the thing we try at Morgan Stanley to highlight to investors all the time is that the TV business, the streaming business, however you want to consume your content, does not have a demand problem. And this survey really reinforces that. Consumers are spending more money and time on streaming and on video and on TV and film than ever before. It has a major cost problem. Outside of Netflix, the rest of the uh, traditional media companies like Disney, uh, Paramount, uh, Warner Brothers Discovery, so far have not figured out how to get to create a profitable streaming business. And so that's the big project at hand. And that 
ultimately often leads to consolidation, to your point. Right. Absolutely. What about Apple? Obviously, they're about to report. And um, you think people would subscribe if, again, they offered live sports? Yeah, we're very bullish on sports uh, as public equities if we can find them. I mean, you may know our top pick uh, is Endeavor. Um, we also have an overweight rating on Formula One. We think sports properties, if you can find them in the public markets, are really attractive places to invest in TMT because they're one of a kind. There's only one of, of these sports, and they tend to be increasingly global in nature. And I think the competition among all of the platforms that we surveyed for sports content is only going to continue to grow. Um, Apple has a you know fairly landmark global MLS deal that uh, has started this season. And all eyes, at least in our world, uh, Kelly, are really on the upcoming NBA renewal uh, coming up here over the next couple of years. Right. I mean, someone's going to have to. I've heard, and Alex Sherman here has reported really well on this, that it's kind of like the last big one up for a while. So do you expect prices to really ratchet higher? And what does that mean for the economics of all these companies? So on the one hand, we're talking about streaming beneficiaries. On the other hand, if their cost goes way up because they all have to pile into sports, I just can't imagine what that does to profitability, which is already an issue. It's like, I'd appreciate the frowny face. <laughs> the blue screen of death strikes again. That was Ben Swinburne from Morgan Stanley. Uh, again, reaching out a lessons, he says, about the streaming service providers. Markets are looking a little bit better as we move throughout the hour. Dow was down to a little bit less than a 400-point decline. We'll have more coverage in a moment on Power Lunch. The NASDAQ, S&P, Dow uniformly down about 1% today. Regional banks remain the worry spot. Don't miss our special programming for Fed Day tomorrow starting at 1 p.m. Eastern. Senators Warren and Kennedy will join Tyler Matheson and I live in Washington, D.C. It's a two-hour special. But coming up next on Power Lunch before all of that, Chad GPT dampened Chegg's outlook, but Ashton Kutcher is going all in, launching a $240 million AI fund. He's always ahead of the curve. Remember on Twitter? Uh, he'll join us live. Tyler's getting ready for it. I'll join him on the other side of this break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.